I need a little help today. I'm going to sing a phrase of a song and you're going to sing the next phrase, right? All the single ladies. In the first service, it was only the dudes who sang. We don't know why. It was the strangest thing. Travis pointed that out. I didn't even realize. He goes, you realize only the guys are singing? All the single ladies. You know, it, it was weird. That whole service, I'm sorry. That was weird. That whole service was weird. Okay, ladies, all the single ladies. And, and if, you, if you've ever been single <laughs> and you're a lady, that's all of you, right? Okay. I want to describe a scenario for you. And I want you to help me understand your feelings about this scenario. Okay, here it is. You've been set up on a date by a friend, single ladies. And if you're, if you're married, remember when, when friends used to set you up. Uh, and you found out how good a friend they were by the quality of who they set you up with. Anyway, so they set you up on this date. You go on this date. It's going kind of well. And you're thinking, oh, I kind of like this guy. So you decide to ask him, however you would, whatever your words you would use. You say, do you have any plans for the future? And he goes, yes, I have three goals for my future. And you're impressed because here's a guy thinking ahead and you've never seen one of those before. And he says, my first goal is not to lose my current job. Little air goes out of that bubble. My second goal is not to get another DUI. My third goal in life is not to get another girl pregnant. Oh, yeah, y'all had a better reaction in the first service. That, that crashing sound <laughs> is this date and your future with this guy coming to, you know, a, a swift conclusion. In the first service, Charlotte said, bye-bye, you know, no. And I said, yes, thank you, Charlotte, for participating because you, you understand. That is, if you're going to eHarmony or, or Matchstock, whatever, you're not looking for that on the profile. There's the guy I want to marry. No, that's not very impressive. Um, this guy is living not to make the same mistakes. And so it's kind of like driving a car down the road while looking behind you. You hit a big pothole and you're looking back. What's going to happen as you're driving this direction, looking back? See, I'm not saying you shouldn't make the same mistakes. I'm saying that shouldn't be the driving goal of your life. You shouldn't be looking back. You should look forward. You should have a better plan for the future, right? So, so that's not a very impressive profile. Okay, let's, let's dial it back a little bit. Let's go back in time to when you were still living at home. And, um, this guy comes to the door to ask you on a date and your dad answers the door. You're not ready. And dad says, come in and sit down. Now, let me just say this. This wouldn't happen at my house. A young man has to call, make an appointment with me before they ever get to go out with my daughters. In fact, this is what happens. And we sit out here in the living room, just the two of us. And I tell him just to block off an indefinite amount of time because it's my time. You want to go out with my daughter. It's my time. And so I ask all kinds of questions. I ask about, you know, your family background. I ask, do you have any plans for the future? <laughs> and, and so I ask all of this stuff. I ask how they met Christ. I ask their intentions for my daughter. And if, if they fail any of those things, there's a door. It's been nice hanging out with you. She's not for you. So far, so far, so good. <laughs> and honestly, honestly, guys who aren't worth my daughter, don't bother making an appointment with me. If that's you. I'm sorry you're offended, but I, uh, anyway, that's another, another day. Okay. Dial it back to when you're, you're at home and this guy comes to the door. Your dad says, come in and sit down. I want to, I want to talk to you. Do you have any goals for your life? And he says, yes, sir. I have three goals for my life. My first goal is not to lose my current job. And dad goes, <laughs> my second goal is not to get another DUI. My third goal is, oh, would you look at the time? 
Is your dad going to be impressed? No, and neither should you. Now, whatever feelings, whatever, whatever you have attached to that scenario, whether you're the single, you know, later or you're at home, whatever feelings, I want you to, I want you to remember those feelings because we're going to come back to it. You don't want a guy like that. You also don't want a relationship with Christ like that, but we'll talk about that in just a second. We're in the third week of this series, and what we've discovered is that every one of us is a mess. We all are messes or have been in messes. In fact, we said the whole reason that we can recognize messes in others is that we're so good at making messes ourselves. So here's kind of been our our theme that's taken us through it. I know a mess when I see one because I am one. Takes one to know one, right? So I want you to say it out loud. All right, that was, God, y'all are so much better. I need to give more coffee or stouter coffee to the early service. So we said, um, all of us can look back. Some of us don't have to look back. Some of us just look around to see a time when we were in a mess, right? And we said, before we criticize other people, we need to be real careful because we need to remember that we are one dumb decision away from being in our next big stinking mess, We discovered that all of us have mess in common, and so mess is what brings us together. And here's some good news. You may not have heard this, that your mess, my mess, is what caused Jesus to leave heaven. Our mess is what brought him near. And even better news is our mess didn't cause him to condemn us. He came to step inside of our mess and say, follow me, I'll lead you out. That's really good news. So here's what we believe as Christians. We believe this. Christians believe Jesus loves the little messes, all the little messes of the world, right? And so this is good news. We need to proclaim this over and over. You're a mess. I'm a mess. Jesus loves the messes, but there's always a but. Jesus loves the little messes of the world, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. He loves you just like you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like you are. So the type of Christianity that most people in the United States live is, is this sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness. I mess up, I feel guilty, I ask for forgiveness. I mess up, I feel guilty, ask for forgiveness. Christianity is not about constantly messing up and constantly getting forgiveness. That's country music. You know I'm right. I don't mind two-stepping to country music with my wife. I don't want to live a country music song, right? This constant uh, cycle of sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness is actually a perversion of Christianity. And it causes non-Christians to look at us and ask some questions. Non-Christians look at many of us and they say, we live the exact same lives. We do the exact same things with two exceptions. What you do for one hour on a Sunday morning, some Sunday mornings, and you feel guilty about what you do and I don't. So non-Christians say, what kind of life is that? I'm asking the same thing. Who wants to live that life? Not me. I don't want to just look past, look back at my past and, and constantly be worrying about and feeling guilty about things. The church I grew up in was a fundamental Baptist church. And they taught, if you behave well enough, God might like you. And if you're really good at behaving, we might like you too. That's Old Testament. I don't want to be a part of that. And thank God when I was in third grade, we left that church. My parents took us to a different church. Uh, Christianity is not just stay out of trouble. All right, that's what I want you to hear today. It's not just stay out of trouble. I've been talking a lot about a guy named Paul. 
Um, his name was Saul and then he meets Jesus and his name is changed to Paul. That's his Gentile name. And he would go to the Gentiles and, and he would start churches all over the Mediterranean area. The very first church in Europe that was ever established, Paul established it in the city of Philippi, which is in Greece. Now, he establishes the church and then he's starting churches everywhere. So he's going around. He had three different missionary journeys where he would either visit churches he started or um, he would start new churches. And so when he writes Philippians, it's 10 years later. It's a letter to the church. It's included in the New Testament. We call it Philippians. And so um, when he's writing this letter, he's in in prison in Rome. The interesting thing about that is Nero is the emperor in Rome. Nero is nuts. Nero, in fact, the Romans said, Caesar is Lord. Christians said, Jesus is Lord. If Caesar thinks he's Lord and he hears you say, Jesus is Lord, you're probably going to die. If you're in there in Nero's time, you're probably going to die on a cross. And then if he, he's feeling per- particularly festive, he would have garden parties where he would crucify Christians on a cross and he would light them on fire to illuminate his party. He's messed up. This is when Paul was writing. And the interesting thing is, I just found this out this week. Nero was a prolific writer. He loved writing. How many of you have heard one single quote that Nero has ever given? It reminds me, as I was studying, it reminds me that Jesus said, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Nero was first in that day. We don't know anything about him other than than he was alive and tortured Christians. Paul, the last, was in prison writing a letter. And millions and millions, if not billions of people in these last 2,000 years have read his letter. I just thought that was interesting. Here's what he says in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. So he says, for 10 years I've been thinking and thanking. Thinking of all the things you've done and thanking God for all those things. Then he continues, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Turns 15 this June 22nd. Our little church is a teenager. And sometimes we still act like it. Yeah, right. Whenever I think about those 15 years, I mean, we look back, Janie and I look back every now and then we see pictures of our kids, little bitty. Uh, We started off in what used to be Rounders, what's Verizon now. We came down here to Landmark School. We were in Gleason's Computing, and we had a little little room next to them where we did our children's ministry. And then we went to the old First Baptist building, and then we eventually, in 2007, bought this building, remodeled it, moved in in, in 2008. And, and I just, for 15 years, I've been thinking and thanking. I've been thinking about the people that sacrificed um, so that you could be here. And, and we couldn't do this church without you. Um, Rachel, my daughter, Rachel, she's finishing up at SFA and she's going to be coming home for the summer. She's going to be our youth intern again this summer. She's going to sing in the band again this summer. If you remember back in September, uh, well, actually August when she finished up and she was leaving, we, we kind of did a, we did a little summary and we figured out that Rachel just singing in the band for six years from the time she was 13 till she was 19, she gave 2,000 hours. By the time you come to rehearsal, by the time you come early on Sunday to do sound check and all of that stuff, she gave 2,000 hours to this church from, from in her teenage years. Blows my mind, but I'm, it makes me proud as a father that she was willing to do that. That's, that's awesome. So then I started thinking about Keith. And Keith, I just talk, had to talk to him in between services to figure out, he has been playing in the band for 14 years. A conservative estimate, just being here 
either on Wednesday night or on Sunday mornings. Keith has given somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 hours to the kingdom of God. That doesn't even count the stuff he does at home because he does things for tracks. If we don't have a bass player, he, he does that. And it's just amazing what all he has done. And in fact, when I was talking about this in the first service, they said he was out there making coffee. And so I need to add an hour to whatever his total is, is what they told me. So thank you, Keith. Uh, Janie was in the early service. I can't even tell you. I do not know how many hours my wife has given to the kingdom of God. See, we believe that this matters and no offense to your job. We believe you should do your job as unto the Lord. We believe we can't build parking lots. We can't build future buildings. If you don't have a job, we're not ever going to, we're not ever going to say, come live on our 42 acres. Cause we have 42 acres. Now we're not going to have a, tell you to quit your job and come live here. And let's, let's, um, you know, whatever, consider our navels. I, we're not going to do that. Think about our belly buttons. No, no, that I don't want to think about my own. I sure don't want to think about yours. Um, but, but here's the thing. Your job does not last forever. Your body, your physical body does not last forever. I was reminded of that last night at the color run. This, this body is breaking down. Janie ran too. And and Janie said while she was running, she was thinking, this is the worst thing I've ever done. I will never do this again. Cause Hannah took off. Hannah beat me. And I come in about five minutes behind her about 30 minutes later, here comes Janie. And she said, she finishes. She goes, that was awful. So I don't think she'll be doing the color run anymore, but this body breaks down. What we're doing here matters for eternity. We said we were going to build a church where people far from God could come in And we're going to tell them, we're going to plant seeds and we're going to allow God to do his thing. And when he brings them into the kingdom, they get to last forever. This matters. And so I just can't thank you enough for those of you who sacrifice. When you go back and you hold those little babies, I know that may not seem like a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice because you allow moms to come in here. When you have that little whiny child that, that, that you'd rather just give them a little butt whooping than that, but, but you can't, you love them anyway. God notices. The Bible says that when you give a cup of water to a child in the name of God, God notices. When you make coffee, God notices. When you greet someone, God notices. So thank you for those of you who get it and serve week in and week out in something that lasts beyond our lifetime. Now to what Paul said. In in verse six, he says this, being confident of this, that he who, what's this word? It is highlighted and underlined so that you can read it out loud. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you. When you became a Christian, God started doing something in you. How does he do it? What does he do? I'm glad you ask. Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When you accepted Christ, you said, God, I'm a sinner. I need you to be my forgiver and my leader. When you did that, you're adopted into the God's family. He deposits the Holy Spirit inside of you to begin the process of transformation. But when we're in a mess, we want Jesus to fix it. And Jesus says, follow me. Fix it is right now. Follow me is a process. We don't like the process. So we get mad at God because he says, follow me and I will lead you out. Paul says, God started something. He wants to grow you up and it's going to take time. So here's the goal for Christians. The whole goal is maturity. God wants you to be mature, to grow up. 
How many of you have ever crammed for a test? And, and how well does that work? Not very. It is definitely in short-term memory, right? My, one of my favorite seminary professors used to say, before every test, he would, he would pray and he'd say, oh God, help these students to remember in proportion to the amount of time they spent studying. And I'd studied, so I, especially seminary, I want to make good grades. I'd studied. And you would hear people in the class go, oh dear God, no. Help me to remember better than what I studied. Anyway. You can cram for a test, but you cannot cram for maturity. Maturity takes time. How many of you have a two-year-old that is fully mature? How many of you have a five-year-old, eight-year-old? How many of you have an 18-year-old? Don't raise your hands. Don't elbow them. That's fully mature. How many of you are married to a 40-year-old that's not fully mature? Travis raised his hand, but he knows Jamie's married to the one who's not fully mature. We, we had this discussion earlier, right? 40. You're not 40. Maturity is the law of the harvest. Hang on. Maturity is you plant a seed and you wait for it to grow. God is doing something inside of you that will take time. So I want you to say this. Christianity is an inside out faith. Say Christianity is inside out. That's all I want you to say. Say it again. Now, I want you to say this. Religion is outside in. Do you see the difference? God begins a work in you the moment you accept Christ. It's going to be a lifelong process. Religion says dress up the outside and don't worry about the inside. We don't want to be about religion. We want to be about relationship with Christ. See, Christianity is not, um, not behavior modification. It's not just be good. It's not just stay out of trouble. Christianity is about God renewing our minds and renewing our hearts. How does he do that? He does it through worship. He does it through reading his word, studying his word. He does it through prayer. He does it through serving hours and hours in the church, whether it's 2,000 hours or 3,000 hours or 6,000 hours. As you do that, you serve something that matters. You read the Bible. You, you go on mission trips. God renews your mind and he renews your heart. He doesn't start with your behavior because he knows if he renews your mind and he renews your heart, your actions and your attitudes will change. Your behavior will change, but he doesn't start with behavior. He starts with your attitudes. Now look what he says. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. What you and I need to understand, what we need to figure out is how to cooperate with God's work in us. Uh, I grew up in the, in, you know, I was, uh, I, I was born in 64. So seventies, I remember the seventies very well. When I was in third grade, we moved from the fundamental Baptist church to first Baptist church, which, and, and my mom got so into Bible study. We had a great Bible teacher who was our pastor. Mama would take notes and, and I, I still have one of her Bibles where there's notes written in it. And, and she just really got into, to all of this. Well, one of the things that was big in the seventies was those buttons, those pin on buttons that you pin through and you click it. And, and mom had a button and it said this on it, P-B-P-G-I-N-F-W-M-Y. And I was in third grade and I said, mama, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. What does it mean, mama? What's it mean? Stands for, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. The idea is I'm not who I once was. Yay. I'm not who I'm going to be. God is working in me to mature me and make me a different person. So be patient. The idea is God is at work. See what God wants to do. Well, let me read this to you first. God is not trying to keep you from something. Oh my goodness. This is a lie from hell. 
When God, uh, when Satan came to Eve in the garden, he said, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he knows when you do, you'll be like God. He's trying to keep something from you. When, when you're tempted with sex or alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, Satan whispers, God doesn't want you to experience this. He's right. He's not trying to keep that from you. God's trying to complete something in you. And it's much more difficult to complete that in you if you're following hard after sin. God wants to mature you and secure you. Mature and secure. Mature. But the problem is most of us are immature and insecure. Immaturity is everything's about me. I'm the center of the universe and it revolves around me. Insecurity causes you to do the same thing. Were they talking about me? Did you see that? They're doing this. And when you're immature and insecure, Satan has a very easy time separating you from your heavenly father and he can destroy you. He also, when you're immature and insecure, he can separate you from the body of Christ and he will destroy you. No offense, actually be offended. You're not smart enough. You're not spiritually mature enough to live apart from Christ and the body of Christ. It takes more than just one person for you to be who you need to be. When you become aware of who you are and whose you are, there is a security that can keep you calm in the middle of the storm. And this is the picture of Jesus. You remember when, when Jesus was in the boat and he was asleep and the storm comes on the Sea of Galilee and it's a, it's a big lake. I don't know if you've ever been on a lake when, when the wind hits. Richland Chambers, you do not want to be on Richland Chambers when a storm hits. I've, I've heard, I know at least three guys whose boats sank on Richland Chambers when, when the storm came up. And I've been in somewhere I've thought, oh man, we better get to shore. The Sea of Galilee is worse than anything you can imagine on, on um, Richland Chambers because there's these mountains around. And when the storm hits, we ask the, the guides and the guides, their eyes get big. And they're like, oh, you don't want to be out here when a storm hits the Sea of Galilee. So the big bad fishermen are in the boat. They're going across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is asleep and the fishermen wake him up and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, is asleep. how could he be asleep? Because he's, he was secure in, in, his relationship with his father. If you're freaked out over your situation, it means you're not seeing God. You're seeing your situation. Bible says perfect love casts out fear. If you're afraid, you do not understand your heavenly father's power and his love for you. He wants to secure you and mature you. Uh, so let's continue. The next thing he says, and this is my prayer that you stay out of trouble and keep your hands to yourself. No, that's not his prayer. That was my demand before prom. <laughs> Some of you don't remember. We did the same picture with, with Rachel and Matt several years ago. And in fact, I think it was Matt's idea. And, and Kale thought this was funny. He, you know, y'all, y'all, I really have to get better coffee for the first service because it was dead. I mean, it was like, I said, really nothing. Y'all give me nothing. All right. Let me ask you a question. When you pray for you, what do you pray? You have a list. My question is what's on that list? We pray things like, oh, give me that job. We pray for our kids. Give me that house. Find our keys. <laughs> right? If we make a list of the things we pray for ourselves, I'm willing to bet most of our prayers for ourselves are very shallow. When we pray, if we pray, 
because our prayers are shallow is why so, so many Christians live powerless lives. Because we pray, get the girl, get the job, get the promotion, get the car, get the boat, right? That's really shallow. You pray little prayers and so very little happens in your life. Here's Paul's prayer in verse nine. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Oh, now you get it, right? No, you don't. What does that even mean? Here's what it means. When, when you pray for you, do you pray for your love? We pray that people will love us. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's prayer is that your love for others, not God, would grow bigger and better. Paul was praying that we would be better lovers of people, not better rule followers. He continues in verse nine, oh, verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best, not what I can get away with. I was talking to a group of teenagers at the color run last night. We were talking about speed and I didn't even bring it up. They started talking about speed and they were, they were enjoying telling, you know, how fast they drive. And, um, then one of them said, our go-to answer when we're asked how fast were you driving is the speed limit. They, they were having this, this great discussion about, um, what we can get away with. Just because you get away with it doesn't make it right. It just means you hadn't been caught. Paul says so that you, you may be able to discern what is best, not what you can get away with. And may be pure, not a mixture. See, this is where Christians mess up. We have a mixture of the world and a mixture of church. That is not of God. He wants us to be pure and blameless. Blameless in how we treat other people for the day of Christ. Paul was praying that we would learn how to love people better, that we would discern what is good and what is best. Have you ever prayed that way for you? That's exactly what God began in you when you accepted Christ. He began this work of helping you to learn and discern how to, how to be better lovers of people and how to discover what's best. God's not trying to make you a better behavior. That's not even a word, but I, I put it in here anyway. God doesn't want you to be a better behavior. He wants you to be a better lover of people. The, the essence of Christianity is not your invisible love for an invisible God. The essence of Christianity is God um, working in us and through us. Actually, I, I, I just jumped ahead there. The essence of Christian, Christian maturity is when you can love another person who's not very easy to love. That's when you know you're making progress. One of the signs of maturity is when you can see another person, not, not see what they've done to you. You see them as God sees them and you treat them as God would treat them. You pray, God, help me to see as you see, help me to do as you say. That is a much higher form of Christianity than stay out of trouble and keep your hands to yourself. See, following Jesus is not primarily about doing what's right. Doing what's right is all about you. That's Old Testament. The focus is still you. That's Old Covenant. The evidence of spiritual maturity is not church attendance. It's not how many verses you know. And I think you ought to be at church all the time. But that's not the essence of Christian maturity. It's how you treat others. When Janie and I went to uh, Israel, one of, the, one of my favorite things, Sea of Galilee and, and Old Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem is the fort. Um, we got to go there. This is the Southern gate and the Southern gate's interesting to me has three, um, arches here. And there's another place where there's two arches and you see that they're filled in. It's because the Muslims 
control of the Temple Mount now, and they have a mosque up there. And, and in another picture, you'll see they also have something called the Dome of the Rock. But here's, here's why I want you to see this. This is the southern area. Go ahead to the next picture. This is the same thing. So there's the, there's the mosque, but this is the southern area. The reason that the gates are filled in is because the Muslims control it. But here's what would happen. See these steps down here is what was called the city of David. Uh, it's where David established, um, his, his city, his kingdom. It's where he unified the Northern and, and Southern kingdoms. And so you would literally go up, it's downhill into this Valley. You would literally go up. The temple Mount was the highest thing around. You could see it from anywhere around. You would take your, your lamb or your dove or whatever it is that you were going to, uh, sacrifice. It was based on what you could afford. You would take it and you would come up here and you would go in. So there's two different sets of stairs. The interesting thing to me is that you would, if you're in line to, um, to give your sacrifice, or if you were going to go worship, whatever you're going to do, one side was you would go in with, with all the unclean people and you would go in and do your ritual and then you'd become, become clean. The people would come out the other side because they didn't want to accidentally bump into somebody who's unclean and then be defiled themselves. This is religion. Okay. So let's say that you've got your little lamb, you got your sheep and you're going to the temple. Jesus was telling this story and I want you to understand it's not like coming in here where it's air conditioned, where we now have, you know, covered drop off and parking and all that stuff. You're standing in line, you're walking uphill, you're standing in line and then go ahead to the next picture. So where the dome of the rock is, the Muslims believe that that's where Abraham offered Ishmael. We as Christians we believe that, that, well, it's even not right there. We believe that's where uh, Abraham offered Isaac. Now, when, when we went there, <clears throat> the Muslims built this here because they think it's the point where the temple used to be. We, we actually went out and walked around and we were talking about it. We were looking at scripture and all this different stuff. We don't think that, that the temple was right there. We think it was right over here in this, in this blank space. And the reason we think that, and, and we don't know, and it doesn't matter ultimately. I just thought this was funny because we're standing there and we were looking at the Eastern gate. And if it's, if it's right over here, it's directly lined up with the Eastern gate. It'd be like me being lined up with those back doors. What's interesting about the Eastern gate is the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, when he steps on the Mount of Olives, it'll be split in two and he will ascend through the Eastern gate. And it would only make sense to me that he would ascend straight up to where the temple used to be, where the Holy of Holies used to be. I just think it's funny that, that somebody thinks, oh, well, we're going to keep, we're going to keep them from having their, you're not going to keep Jesus from doing whatever Jesus wants to do. Doesn't matter where the temple was. Jesus is still going to do. I just thought that's funny. <clears throat> I have a weird sense of humor. Okay. So you see these things, you're standing in line. So here's the point I want you to get. You've walked up here. You've stood in line. You've come in, you've been purified. You go way over here. And Jesus, just think about it. Jerusalem is hot. So think of, think of, you know, summer here. Think of standing in line with all these animals. You're sweating. They're doing their thing. It's probably hot. It's probably smelly. And it takes forever to get up there to have your sacrifice offered. And Jesus says, if you're standing in line and you get all the way up and you're the next in line. And he says, if you are there and you remember that somebody has something against you, he says, leave your offering, go and make things right with that person. Then come back and offer your offering. And everybody in the crowd gasped because they said, are you saying put people above God? And Jesus said, no, no. 
how you demonstrate that you are following God is to put others before you. So following Jesus is not primarily about doing what's right. It's about doing what's right for others. See, as long as, that was funny. I didn't know it stayed on there. That's right. I kind of liked it. As long as I'm focusing on myself, behaving myself, the focus is still on me. That's a recipe for disaster because isn't it true that you've never made a mess of your life while putting other people first? When you've made a mess of your life is when you've put yourself first. And it's only a matter of time till you're in your next big mess if you're focusing on yourself. So we want to ask people to do something, greet, make coffee, work back with the children, whatever you need to do to put other people first and do something that matters. To address your mess, you're going to have to cooperate with what God is doing inside of you, the work that he began in you. When you do that, when you cooperate with God, you're not going to be a better rule keeper. You're going to be a better father. You're going to be a better mother. You're going to be a better spouse. You're going to be a better employer. You're going to be a better employee. You're going to be a better church member. I'm going to ask you today to do something uh, to add to your list. Whatever it is you pray for you, I'm going to ask you to add this little prayer. Heavenly Father, complete the work you've begun in me. This is how you're going to begin to cooperate with what God's doing in you. Now, we're going to finish with a, with a music video. It's a, it's a worship video. And I just need to tell you where, where I heard it. When I first heard this song, Janie and, and Rachel and Hannah and I were sitting at American Airlines Center and we'd done, we'd gone to one of those outcry tours. It's Christian tour and elevation worship had come up and I knew a little bit about them. But when they started playing this song, it's called Resurrecting. When they started playing this song, Hannah and, and Rachel are up and they're just worshiping. And I've told them it just blesses my, my daddy's heart to see my girls worship. Janie, sometimes she stood, sometimes she didn't. I was, I was such an emotional wreck at that time. I, I was a mess emotionally at that time. <clears throat> and so I, almost the whole concert, I'm just, I'm just sitting down. And, and when they started singing this song, the presence of God just came heavy upon me. And I just wept as I listened to these words. And, and some of my favorite words are, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. He who began a good work in you will complete it. The resurrected king has resurrected me. From the ashes I will rise. Just, just listen to these words. And, and if you want to come and kneel, if you want to kneel where you are, just listen to these words and, and think about God is at work in those who are his children and he will complete it through the power of the resurrection.
shines for all to see. Rob the grave. 
By your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat, from the messes that I have made. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a lifelong process. My prayer is that you will learn to join God in that process. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that there is a power greater than anything we can face. And the power wants to transform us. That power is, is the same power you raised Jesus from the dead with. And you said that you will transform us into new creations. We will have a new life. God, help us to walk in that life, not in the messes from our past. Resurrected King, resurrect each one of us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.